Hey, podcast listeners, you listen to this show after it's been recorded each week. Well, why not get an extra bonus and listen to it while it's actually being recorded and get some questions in yourself? The Energy Gang is going to be hosting its first live event in Washington, D.C. at MDVC's Solar Focus Conference. We'll be capping the conference on the evening of November 12th with a lively discussion about the future of solar on the East Coast. For more information, go to mdvcia.org slash solarfocus2013. We'll also have a link on the podcast page. Hope you can join us for our first live show. For the week of October 3rd, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. In the political armpit of the nation, Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton, founder of 38 North Solutions, is also behind the mic in Washington. Catherine, hello there. Another big, uh, if not embarrassing, week in this fair city of ours, hey? Yeah, another day I can't uh, take off and go visit museums and national monuments. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of friends in government who are out of jobs right now, and uh, they're definitely looking at the movie listings and trying to find things to do. I mean, they can't even work. They're not allowed to check emails or, or do any work at all. Yeah, it's pretty awful here. I was at a conference at the University of Michigan last week, and I randomly talked to two people at the air- airport, and they asked me where I was from, and I said I was from Washington, and they both scoffed and asked if I was a politician with just such an incredible amount of scorn. Um, I was wearing jeans and Converse, so I don't know why they thought I was a politician, <laughs> but the, the point was indeed made. And up in New York City, finally ready to release his new book, is Jigger Shaw, energy futurist, consultant, and clean tech investor. How's it going, Jigger? Fantastic. Did the uh, did the folks you met at the airport not know that you were a bodybuilder? <laughs> I am not a bodybuilder. I'm a power lifter. There's a big difference. I lift for strength, not aesthetics. Well, you look good, too. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, speaking of your book, that's what's going to be our first topic this week. A lot of people uh, know you as the founder of Sun Edison, the very successful solar project developer that pioneered the power purchase agreement in the industry. And uh, Jigger has since become an active investor in the clean tech space, and we're going to talk a little bit about his take on un- unlocking climate wealth. And then, oh dear listeners, we really are sorry. We're going to talk about the incredible crap storm in Washington. I know people are probably sick of hearing about politics, but it is really important for the industry. There is a lot of crossover to the business of energy, and uh, to those of us who follow politics, the shutdown and politics around the shutdown is kind of like a car crash we can't look away from. So we are going to run down the wide-reaching impact of political shenanigans on energy. And finally, California is out with its study on the value of net metering, and the results are not great for solar. The industry is pushing back. We'll look at who's right. And to round out the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, let's begin with a number, $10 trillion. That's $10 trillion. The amount of investment, Jigger says, that we can unlock from private businesses by the end of the decade. No, he's not selling shake weights or new kitchen gadgets. Jigger is talking about real wealth, creating climate wealth, and that's the title of his new book, um, Jigger, I want to kind of sketch out your roadmap and talk about what climate wealth is to you. Um, tell me a little bit about the release of your new book and what that plan is for leveraging all that investment that we talk a lot about on this podcast. The premise of the book really comes down to business model innovation being equal to technology innovation. I think there's a lot of folks who who continue to push 
technology innovation and saying that the technologies that we have today are not good enough to scale to this $10 trillion number. And, you know, I try to offer a, a counter thesis. What's that roadmap exactly? Well, I think when you think about where the International Energy Agency is today, and they're the ones really talking about the $10 trillion goal, they're already assuming we're going to hit $4.5 trillion uh, just because of the success of solar and wind and other technologies in that area. And I think we all can agree that solar really was unlocked through finance and business model innovation. The technology innovation was essential to getting the cost down, but really getting it out in the marketplace was business model and financial innovation. And so the real question is, how do we get that level of innovation to energy efficiency, uh, converting diesel trucks to natural gas trucks, figuring out how to take carbon out of our agriculture system, local food, water efficiency, and all the other sectors? So do you actually outline some of those specific plans? We, we talked a little bit about um, that, those models in our podcast with Rob Day. We talked about you know, the equivalent of the power purchase agreement for solar hot water, the clean web concept. Uh, what about some other technologies that you're looking at? I mean, how can we apply those to some areas that a lot of clean tech investors may not be looking at? Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of books that talk about the potential and the Carbon War Room you know, has reports to talk about the potential. This book is really, you know, shown through a lot of my um, stories, I would say, in terms of my hardships in building Sun Edison and how those hardships play a role in helping new entrepreneurs apply business model innovation to their technologies. So, for instance, in one of the companies I've invested in is a company called Bright Farms, which does local food um, using 25-year-old hydroponic greenhouse technology. And figuring out how to actually make up their own PPA, which in their case is a produce purchase agreement, um, and figuring out how to get investors interested in that is is really you know the the the, the purpose of the book. I Jigger, I can't wait to read the whole book. I'm so excited about it. Um, one thing that struck me, I just was kind of thinking back on my experience when I was on the trade mission to COP15 in Copenhagen in December of 2009. And one of the things that struck me, um, in addition to just the climate negotiations and how, how they weren't going anywhere, was that the business community, the global business community, was really united around this idea that climate change presented this incredible opportunity for business, for global business, and a great way to make money through investment and innovation. And, you know, that was four years ago, and I've just been kind of watching it. But what do you think is taking so long? Or, or do you think it is taking so long? Well, I do think that there's genuine confusion. So I agree with you completely in the role of policy and the role of governments to provide guideposts to business around unlocking this. But I really truly believe that the vast majority of elected officials subscribe to the notion that the technologies that we currently have today are not good enough and that through additional R&D, their costs will come down and that if they're good enough, they'll self-replicate without any additional policy mechanisms. And I think that when you think about what happened in solar, we had specific policy mechanisms, but we also had a significant amount of business model innovation. And I just simply don't think that the government feels like they have any stake in promoting business model innovation. They think that that's something the private sector has to do on their own. And when it doesn't happen, they deem the technology a failure. What I really like about this is that you pepper 
your story about how you founded Sun Edison throughout. And it didn't just happen overnight. Uh, It took many steps along the way, learning about entrepreneurship, kind of finding your way throughout school, um, going to BP Solar in your younger years, finding a book on energy and learning about solar and, and figuring out that this was something you were super interested in. And it took a lot of a lot of steps along the way to get to the idea for Sun Edison, and then it took many years after that to actually deploy it. So looking at that, are there some specific pieces of advice that you'd give to entrepreneurs out there that may have a good idea, who may see something interesting in the industry, and they just don't quite know how to act on it? What are those factors in place that led you to create that model and actually get it going? Well, you know, I think some of the most basic tenets of entrepreneurship are things that I learned while starting Sun Edison that I share in the book. Like number one was when I first started Sun Edison, um, I had this uh, great uh, TV episode uh, on Scott McNeely that that I saw where Scott talked about how many of the companies during the internet boom were overcapitalized. Sun Edison actually grew its company on less than $125,000 of total capital for the first two years, right? And by being undercapitalized, we innovated without spending money to solve problems. And these days when entrepreneurs raise too much money, they always hire too many consultants, too many lawyers, too many people, as opposed to actually using their own brain power to figure out how to innovate out of solutions. So that's one of the big lessons I learned at Sun Edison is you want to be a cash-starved business when you first start. Um, and there's a few other lessons like you know taking the road less traveled, uh, meaning don't get addicted to the 2% interest money that the Rockefeller Foundation or some of these other guys give you because they're not considered smart money. No one wants to follow the Rockefeller Foundation. There's a lot of people who want to follow Goldman Sachs. So you want to get money from people that other folks want to follow, not folks that just give you free or cheap money um, because it doesn't really help you raise the next round of money. And then, you know, I said I would say the third lesson, of which there are many in the book, but the third lesson is really just that um, it really matters that people are rooting for you. The thing that really made Sun Edison successful is that there were a lot of times where it was 50-50 which way something could go, and it always went our way because we were nice, and people actually liked us, and so we won all ties, and that's important. you got to make your own luck. Yeah, it's interesting, Jigger, because I'm watching the smart grid space, the energy storage space, um, and all the apps that are going along with it. And it, they're just as, there are just so many people trying things. There's so many people out there and the, and young people, like I just know my own kids and I'm going to sound like a fuddy duddy here. Um, you know, they want instantaneous feedback and instant results. Everything is so quick and so in real time for them. Um, they might, my kid took all of his holiday money and invested on E-Trade in some 3D printing company. And in like in a month, I was able to buy a dirt bike. I mean, that's kind of the way he sees how he's going to have to make money. And I just wonder with all these kind of disaggregated smaller entrepreneurs, how do you kind of find the ones that you, that do attract like you were able to do um, the the strong money, the good money, and the happy money. I mean, all that money exists. We had Rob Day on this podcast. We had other folks on this podcast. They do due diligence. They work hard. I think that you know, in the solar business, we have something on the order of ten thousand companies in the United States um, already, and not all of them are going to be high growth companies. And so, 
Some of them are going to do what they do. Some of them are going to be high-growth companies, and when they want to be high-growth companies, they're going to have to follow a certain pattern. Now, you know, could somebody create an app and create a billion-dollar company? Absolutely. They did that with Instagram. Do I think they're going to save a gigaton of carbon that way? No way. I mean, look at Opower. Opower is a clean web company. It's a company where you took a bunch of software folks, they created an interesting tool, they got Sacramento Municipal Utility District to hire them at $10 a person, $10 per residential customer to, to help them save money using smiley faces and frowny faces. But now they've got hundreds of employees and they're deep into regulatory affairs, deep into public policy, deep into figuring out how to actually use human behavior to change the way in which we use electricity to save a gigaton of carbon. So I think we all can admit that this stuff just is not going to happen just through enthusiasm. Well, the book is called Creating Climate Wealth. Uh, How can people find it, Jigger? Well, the book comes out on October 8th, and it's on Amazon. Uh, We also have um, a lot of bulk orders that we fulfilled. So we've already sold about 1,500 books on the pre-order, so that's great. And um, and uh, so if you need to do bulk ordering, you can you know reach us through the uh, the Energy Gang uh, webpage. Excellent. Well, it's a combination of a personal story, a road map, and a how-to for entrepreneurs. So definitely check it out. Yeah, and I want I want to sign I want you to sign my copy, Jigger. Yeah, why don't we do that? We'll uh, we'll we'll sign copies and uh, do all that stuff during our uh, live show there in uh, in in November. Yeah, can you just read it to me over Skype? <laughs> Happy to. It'll be a gr- it'll be a great way to put you to sleep. <laughs> All right, on to our second topic. Nothing like breaking a little positivity by focusing on politics. I swear Dirk Nowitzki of the Dallas Mavericks predicted what would happen this week during a basketball game last year between the Mavericks and the Minnesota Timberwolves. Actually, nobody really believed he had any Oh my god. Oh! Oh! Yes, the government is in shutdown mode, putting 818,000 federal employees out of work, and another million are still working without pay. If you've opened up a newspaper or turned on the television, you've heard about the politics that led to the shutdown. So we're not going to beat those to death, but we're going to instead explore how the shutdown and the politics are impacting energy. Um, Catherine, what is the latest that you're hearing on how the shutdown is impacting agencies? So DOE, Department of Energy, has a couple of weeks of what they call know-your funds. So those folks are still going to work, so my traffic hasn't eased, uh, which I kind of thought it would. Uh, The folks at FERC still also has some funding, so they are going to work every day. EPA is totally different. Most of those folks have been furloughed, um, which means they don't get paid. Um, Only 7% of employees right now working. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And then there are just a ton of civilians. I talked to a woman whose kid goes to one of my kids' schools. She's from DOD. She's a civilian. And she said, you know, we were hit with a sequester last summer. And so we were furloughed then. And she said, I'm furloughed now. And these are people who just, these are jobs for them. And it's their livelihood. So watching that is really difficult. Um I don't know what is going to end up happening at DOE. I I do assume that this is going to linger until they can also solve the debt ceiling at the same time. And um, depending on how that all shakes out, and, you know, there's a list 
of things that the GOP wants with uh, the debt ceiling as well um, with that negotiation. So kind of depending on how that works, I mean, there there could be some significant impacts on energy. I don't know if you've seen the list for the debt ceiling, Stephen. I have um, not. I can go through. So some of the things that they want for the debt ceiling and somebody said rather than a menu of options. It's oh, more you like mean a like Keystone XL, yeah, EPA approved, regs? Yeah, right. right approved Keystone, yeah. no EPA carbon regs, more oil and gas on public lands and offshore drilling, no coal ash regs. So, um, and so basically then, Obama has to become a hardcore Republican in order to get that passed. Right. And these are all energy things. So and then they're throwing tax reform in. And and I don't think that they have on the list unless we renew the production tax credit. We're not doing they're not raising the debt ceiling. I don't think that's the line they're taking on this. Mm. Obviously, with a short term shutdown, you know, we're a few days into this. It's still uncertain how long it could go. Uh, with a very short-term shutdown, some of these programs um, may not be super impacted. But if this extends over weeks, we're definitely going to see major delays in permitting of projects on uh, public lands through the Department of Interior. We are already seeing that the Treasury Department has furloughed all staff under the 1603 grant program. So uh, no applications are being processed. And that, of course, has implications for uh, project developers and financiers. Um, and the EPA, as you mentioned, you know, 7% of staff on the job right now, and they have completely stopped uh, cleaning up Superfund sites, uh, monitoring uh, waste dumping sites, monitoring water processing facilities. They're stopping all carbon regulations and anything else in the works. Uh, Jigger, on the solar side, are you hearing anything from anyone on the 1603 program? Like if, say, the government shut down for a week or two, will that have a serious impact? Do you, do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a number of people who put a bunch of money up to get um, grandfathered into the 1603 program, and they're all marching to try to get some of their projects in by the end of the year. And um, and I think they're going to have a tough time um, if they don't get the feedback that they need from the U.S. Treasury officials who are no longer staffing that office this week um, on time. So I, I do think that there's some uh, challenges there. But just to go off script a little bit, I mean, the thing that's shocking to me is, you know, Michael Linden, who's at the Center for American Progress, was was um, interviewed by uh, Dylan Matthews at the on the Wonk blog for the Washington Post, and he basically purports that the Republicans have already won. You know, for as much as they're going to get blamed for this, they are going to the current budget that the Senate's trying to pass is below the Ryan budget, and. You know, the Senate still projected to, you know, become a Republican-led Senate in the 2014 elections. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, like who's actually playing chess and who's playing checkers. But you're assuming that they're claiming victory has to do with fiscal discipline and not with something, some larger message. No, no. I think what the Republicans do is have one big shiny object over here on this side and then you know, and no one talks about the fact that they've gathered all this ground on the other side. You look at, for instance, the Anwar stuff that Bush pushed in 2000, where all of the environmental groups blew their entire wad trying to protect the Alaskan National Refu Refuge. And in the, in the process, Bush opened up drilling in Colorado and Utah and all sorts of national parks and everything else because the environmental groups didn't have any money left to to fight the battle. And I think that, you know, you start to see this over and over again where Republicans come up with some crazy, crazy ass thing on the side 
And secretly, they're actually winning on all the other major issues. Yeah, this is what happens when you approach the table with an extreme position. I mean, you get more of what you want. Yeah, I'm really frustrated, especially because I spend a lot of time trying to make it okay for Republicans to support clean energy. And, you know, there's some really good people who care a lot about clean energy. And, you know, because of the political shenanigans of a few, uh, they're they're all becoming so extreme. Um, and you know, and that's that is what is so sad because we we try to do things that are really nonpartisan, and it's almost like nothing's nonpartisan anymore. Well, that's it right there. That's that, that's why the political side of this is so relevant to the industry because there are a lot of moderate Republicans in the Senate and plenty in the House still that are afraid to speak up on these issues. You look at Boehner's. You look at the criticisms of Boehner and his inability to lead and step away from the Tea Party Republicans who are now dictating his position. This is exactly what we see with a lot of other Republicans who in the past have been extremely supportive of renewables and with sensible government programs to support emerging industries. And now they do not have a voice whatsoever. And so this debate around the continuing resolution, around government lending and around Obamacare is exactly the problem that we see in clean tech as well, clean tech policymaking. Yeah, and there is no way. Here was something else that came out this week: is that Ron Benz withdrew his name from the chairmanship of FERC consideration, and there is no way that should have been political. FERC, it's FERC. Those guys are not political, and there is no way it should have been, and it was completely politicized. Yeah, that was another really interesting announcement that kind of flew under the radar with the shutdown news. Ron Benz, of course, was. Brought in from Colorado to potentially lead FERC and uh, the Senate Natural Resource Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee was all over him. Uh, even Lisa Murkowski, who's a moderate Republican, was very skeptical of Bins, um, particularly for the program that he supported in Colorado that would phase out 900 megawatts of coal and phase in natural gas and clean energy. And there's just so much skepticism of the Obama administration within the Republican Party because of this executive climate plan. Republicans are searching for anything that they can do to try to put a stop to it. And unfortunately, Bins, who reportedly had no connection with the White House about the climate plan, um, was brought into this and is seen as a symbol for what the administration is supposedly doing to shut down coal in this country. So he was a casualty of that war. Yeah, well, and there was a lot of money spent. I mean, industry threw a ton of money to lobby these people one way or the other. It was the strangest um, sideshow. Well, but the thing is, is that the industry spent a lot of money because they knew it would work. I mean, this president has a long history of not supporting his nominees when they're in they're in uh, you know in the crosshairs of folks, and um, you know, and so like it's it's it makes it very difficult to attract really good candidates as well. I mean, Ron was a fantastic candidate, and I you know I I, I hasten to think who they're going to replace him with because it's going to be very difficult to get other good people to do this. And you see the same thing with federal employees. I mean, my wife was a senior executive at the State Department until last April, and um, you know, and she hated you know being a, an employee under the Obama administration because she felt like there was no air cover. Bins certainly didn't have a lot of cover, so. He is back in Colorado at his uh, private consulting practice, away from the blood sport in Congress, as he called it. So well, speaking I, of, yeah, I think he threw a grenade over his shoulder as he left. <laughs> what speaking to Politico and yeah. talking yep. about the blood sport in Congress and how yep. they smeared his name? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so actually speaking of the coal industry fighting against bins, the coal industry is is um, trying to work on a legal challenge against potential EPA regulations for CO2 emissions at new power plants. And an interesting element to this is that the EPA is requiring um, or bringing CCS into the picture um, in order to reduce emissions from coal plants by f- more than 40%. And the industry says, well, these com- these technologies are not commercially ready, so they're going to start challenging the EPA in court, saying that the, the option that the EPA is laying out on the table is unworkable and, and um, is difficult for the industry to meet. I mean, literally, like, you know, it was just three years ago that the coal industry was saying, we're going to have solutions ready by 2020. And yeah, now we're, they're saying, yeah, oh, it's totally. never going to happen. I totally agree. It's like, oh, we're clean. We have CCS. And now they're saying, oh, no, we don't have CCS. Yeah, I do think that we shouldn't give these guys an inch. And when they actually, like, you know, show the hypocrisy of their point of view, we really have to come out against them guns blazing and not just assume that the American public is going to notice the hypocrisy themselves. Well, here's hoping that the coal industry is listening to this podcast. So uh, what do you guys think about the the CCS requirements in the EPA regs to begin with? I actually think it's a good thing for clean tech. Look, I mean, I'm not – I'm – not going to invest my own money into CCS technology, but I do think that there's a role for CCS technology, and I do think that there's um, innovation that's possible there. And having a big signal like EPA saying that CCS is going to be paid for if you actually want to keep a coal plant open allows that innovation to come out, and then maybe that technology never gets used for coal, but it could be used for industrial emissions in the future. Yeah, I definitely think it'll drive that market. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Let's go on to our third topic. Once again, folks, net metering. Um, This is an issue we've addressed a lot on the show, and we will keep the conversation fairly brief. The Public Utilities Commission in California just released a new study showing that net metering for solar may cost over a billion dollars for ratepayers in California by 2020, seemingly boosting utility arguments that net metering needs to be replaced with a fairer payment mechanism in the coming years. Um, it's a long study, uh, hundreds of pages long, but uh, you know a lot of people have been talking about it. Jigger, how do you account for this study and your thinking of on net metering? A lot of people were anticipating this. Well, I mean, it's interesting. The study is very much like, uh, you know, John Kerry's I voted for the war before I voted against it, where in the first part of the report, it talks about how net metering customers don't actually carry their weight. But then it says later in the report, when you use full cost accounting, um, we find that in aggregate, quote, net, net metering customers pay amounts close to their full cost of service. In general, the non-residential accounts continue to see bills that substantially exceed their full cost of service. So later in the report, they're basically saying that, you know, net metering companies, customers actually pay their weight. Well, look, as we talked about in the AB 327 conversation with Shale Khan, the changes to uh, tiered rates are coming in California. The changes to net metering are coming. There's still a long way to go before these changes are made. The solar industry still has a major say. Um, My guess is that uh, it'll pan out. I mean, just looking at the process and the way that it's unfolded, I feel like they're not going to completely scrap net metering and and come to a conclusion in California that's going to decimate the solar industry. Well, and Georgia Power still stands by their uh, benefit analysis that says that 
that the value of solar is about a penny or two per kilowatt hour more expensive than you know retail rates. And so it's amazing to me how you know we're basically standing by Southern Company right now. All right. Well, folks, plenty more net metering and utility discussions to come, and we'll just wrap that one up here. Let's wrap up the show and uh, tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, we'll start with you. Well, you know, I had a very interesting conversation with um, – with Bloom Energy after our podcast from before. And, uh, you know, they basically indicated that, that, that they actually thought that the greenhouse gas emissions numbers that they came up with were actually far better than combined cycle gas plants because of um, their DG nature, but also their peak efficiency is 60%, which was far higher than I thought it was. And so, you know, what's interesting, I think Bloom Energy is actually going to make a go of uh, justifying their existence here in the next, um, you know, long-term policy cycle, which is a good thing to see. So do you mean they think they haven't uh, told their story well enough? Yeah, they think that they're completely misunderstood. And from the data that they gave me, I'd say that that's right. But, you know, I told them that, you know, it's your responsibility to put your story out there, which I thought was, I thought was kind of interesting, though, that they're ready to do it. I'm so glad you talked to them. They had the same conversation with me. <laughs> so, Catherine, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. Okay, so I hate to do this, but so even though the government's shut down, Congress somehow keeps holding hearings because they have deemed all of their poor staff essential employees. Not that they're getting paid, mind you. These people aren't getting paid, but they're still showing up to work. So the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee yesterday had a hearing. It's their Energy Policy Subcommittee, and they had a hearing on the production tax credit for wind. And, you know, how is it calculated? They had a guy, tried a guy up from the IRS. How are you interpreting the latest version? They had the American Wind Energy Association. And then they had, of course, the guy from IER, the Institute uh, for, for – what is it? The Institute I, for Energy Research. Yeah, Institute for Energy Research, who basically said this. He said there is no correlation to having a production tax credit – and innovation and technology. And it, it astounded me because the whole reason, you know, if you're if you're if you're if you're told you are going to get paid for what you produce, you have every incentive in the world to innovate to make your piece of technology more efficient so that you will get paid more for producing more. So it was just unbelievable that that was the party line. I mean, how the hell does he think that the industry turned from pr- producing wind turbines out of tractor equipment into the sophisticated industry it is today. It came from deployment mechanisms. Obviously, R&D played a big role, but the PTC and the initial ITC played a big role in that. They clearly didn't read my book. (laughs) Well, it's not on Amazon yet. That's October 8th. That's true. That's true. We'll have to have another hearing then. All right. Well, mine is also political oriented. So as I mentioned in the introduction of the show, I was in Michigan last week speaking at the uh, at a conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. And I saw Bob Inglis, a uh, former Republican congressman from South Carolina on the opening panel. And he was there talking about um, climate solutions and the need for his party to bring serious ideas to the table to actually address climate change. And uh, Inglis has been making the rounds in Washington over the last year with this message He's uh, tried to set up some meetings with high-profile Republicans and folks like the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, um, but it's mostly fallen on deaf, deaf ears within the party. But I have to say, 
I, I have you know seen him speak before. Um, it is just so refreshing to hear a conservative bring traditional moderate conservative principles to the conversation. He talked about you know revenue neutral carbon tax, um, why he believes we should have an end to almost all energy subsidies, his thoughts on the limited role of government and commercialization programs. I mean, it, it sounds kind of patronizing to give him so much credit. But he's just one of the only Republicans in national politics publicly talking about these solutions right now and not denying the science. So um, it was really refreshing, but it also reminds me how far in the wrong direction we've gone on this issue. So here's hoping a guy like Inglis can start influencing the discussion within the party. And I'm still a little skeptical of that. Bob Inglis makes us all want to be Republicans. Well, I'm hopeful, Jigger, that we'll get some more of those. Yeah, time will tell, but time is ticking. And time is up for us as well. It is uh, the end of the show. Thanks a lot for listening. We are honored to have you with us each week. You can get automatic updates from the Energy Gang podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite podcast aggregator by subscribing to our RSS feed. And that is linked on the podcast page. And just a reminder, we're going to be recording our first live show at the MDVCA fo- uh, conference in Washington on November 12th. I'm pretty excited about that. Our first our first live show. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm psyched, we all, but we're all going to have to wear pants. No bunny slippers and shorts here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, I dress up in a suit and tie for these things. Yeah, I'm at least wearing a T-shirt today. I actually have my Climate Hawk T-shirt on right now. <laughs> So again, that's going to be on November 12th. We would love for you to join us in the discussion on the expanding East Coast solar market. You can find more information on that at mdvcia.org. That's mdvseia.org slash solar focus 2013. And we're going to have a link to that conference and all the other stories we covered this week on our website, greentechmedia.com. So, Jigger, great conversation today. Congrats on the book, and uh, thanks for being with us again. Thank you. Catherine, always fun. Stay positive this week in Washington. Okay, thanks so much, Stephen. You too. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>